chapter 7. Uh, if, we, if you were with me, you may remember, I'll be impressed if you were, but uh, we were looking at, uh, at that passage, wonderful passage at the end of chapter 6. Do not worry, and how it is that the Christian uh, can be someone who takes hold of the promises of Christ and is able, uh, knowing that we live in a fathered world, not to be plagued by anxiety. Challenging stuff, I remember it being. But we're coming to uh, chapter 7 today, uh, which is the beginning of the final section of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's a section of the uh, Sermon on the Mount which is very much focused on the theme of judgment. It's woven through each of the passages. Um, let's, uh, let's read our passage together. Uh, and so do uh, join me in standing if you're able to. Uh, and we're going to read chapter 7 and verses 1 uh, to 6. So Jesus speaking says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank In your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Shall we pray as we stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the difficult bits, the challenging bits, the encouraging bits. Uh, Father, we pray by your spirit this morning that you would speak to us, each one of us, and that you would convict us of our sin and that you would change us into the likeness of your Son for your glory. Amen. Want to grab a seat? And as I say, we are uh, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about judging, uh, and particularly in this passage, talking about judging others. And we're going to break the passage down to three sections. First, we'll look at the first two verses, and we're going to give it the title, Don't Be Ultra Critical. Then we'll look at verses 3, 4, and 5, Don't Be Hypocritical. And finally, verse 6, Don't Be Uncritical. So, firstly, uh, Don't Be Ultra Critical. Critical. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again, shall we? Uh, So Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, I wonder what you think Jesus is getting at here. Uh, Let's begin by thinking about what he doesn't mean. Because I think that might help to, to clarify things. He's not saying that we shouldn't ever... Uh, criticize others. By that I mean sort of give consideration to what people say and what people do. That would be, in a sense, quite a popular idea today, wouldn't it? I was uh, preparing and reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage, and he, writing in the late 1950s, said, we're living in an age which dislikes thought and hates theology and doctrine and dogma. It's an age which is characterised by a love of ease and compromise. Anything for a quiet life. 
It's an age of appeasement. It's an age that dislikes anyone who knows what they believe and really believes it. Well, if that was true 60-odd years ago, it seems to be even more true today, doesn't it? Society is obsessed with uh, the, this idea of, of not judging other people for the choices that they make. So long, they say, as they aren't hurting anyone. You know, people should be allowed, says society, to, to do whatever they like. In fact, even to be whoever they like. And pity the person who dares to speak out against this new religion. Because it is a religion, a religion of tolerance and indulgence. That's why, by the way, Christianity is so unpopular, isn't it? Because what does the gospel say? Well, the gospel says you need to be saved. It says there is a God, there is right and wrong, we've all done wrong, and we need Jesus. I mean, that's, that, can you think of anything that could fly more in the face of, of, of the, the kind of, uh, the slogan of today? Uh, it, it really is something that we swim in. It's a religion of tolerance, and it's hard not to let it sort of shape, affect the way that, that we, within the church, uh, think. We're often frightened, aren't we, the idea of sharing the gospel with other people or, or even even just sort of daring to point out that someone's behaviour isn't right. We're so influenced by this way of thinking that it can feel like, it can even feel like maturity not to have opinions about sort of secondary matters. We're afraid that we'll be judging other people by, by taking a position. But that can just lead to a kind of self-imposed spiritual stupidity. Well, if Jesus meant don't have or express an opinion about other people, in a sense, that would be easy, wouldn't it? Because we could kind of go for a very sort of shrunk down, narrowed down gospel, which we just keep very much to ourselves. But we don't have to look very far to see that that can't be what he means. Have a look at verse six. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Well, figuring out who dogs and pigs are so that we can obey Jesus surely involves forming some, some sort of judgment. Or verse 15, if we look over the page, he says, watch out for false prophets who he says come to you in sheep's clothing, but it inwardly are, are ferocious wolves. Well, how can we beware of them? How can we watch out for them if we, if we just take our brains out and don't think? You know, if we're so afraid of judging that we never make uh, or consider what they're teaching. We never make an opinion. We never form an opinion. Especially, as Jesus points out, these people often appear harmless and they're invariably very nice. We could go to Galatians where Paul declares, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we've preached to you. A curse be on him. And we can look at plenty of other examples. You see, there are plenty of examples where we hear that we need to consider what we are hearing, what we're being taught. What about people's behaviour? Well, later in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 18, you know, one of the key passages, one of the most famous passages on church discipline. In the Reformation, the three marks 
of a, uh, of a true church were these. I don't know if you've heard this before, but the three marks of a true church. Where the word of God is preached, where the sacraments are administered, say baptism, the Lord's Supper, and where church discipline is exercised. So a third one that catches us out, isn't it? Discipline was as much a mark of the church as the preaching of the word. So the reformers said. So, clearly, pull all that together and Jesus expects us to form judgments. He expects us to make judgments over whether people have sinned and over what people teach. Over word and over action. Which means, coming back to chapter 7, he can't mean just sort of be free and easy. You know, don't even have an opinion about what others do, let alone express it. Well, there we go. That's clarified, I hope, what he can't possibly mean. Well, what does he mean then? He means, as I've given in the sort of the heading, don't be ultra critical. He's talking about a, a sort of, you know, a condemning spirit, a censorious spirit. That's a word we don't use very much today. Is it? it just means severely, harshly critical spirit. He's saying don't judge harshly with an attitude that condemns people and writes them off. Like in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, where the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. It's an outrageous thing to pray. It's the sort of attitude that comes from a a self-righteous spirit, a feeling of superiority that we're all right and others, well, they're just not, are they? Because that attitude, it leads, I'm sure you're familiar with it, it leads to a severely critical spirit, an ultra-critical attitude. It's always looking to put other people down. Never has a kind word to say about somebody else. Quite nitpicking. Treating others with contempt, even, even despising them. The Pharisee says, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And you can imagine the, the content that he's casts him aside with. The ultra-critical person, can you relate to this? The ultra-critical person actually can enjoy finding faults in others, getting a satisfaction in, in noticing them, and then even more in pointing them out. And they always think the worst about other people's motives. Maybe you've had that experience when someone lets you down in some way. Uh, they're late for a meeting. I was very nearly late this morning. Well, I was late, really. Um, they haven't cleaned up something. Uh, they've broken something precious of yours, whatever it might be. And you, you, you kind of just roll your eyes and sigh, and you immediately start running through in your head that kind of catalogue of, of examples of how utterly hopeless they are and how this is so very like them before you even know what's happened. Or maybe, maybe you just sort of let off at them for how they've let you down and how they're always doing this. Or perhaps you're one of those who says, oh, it's fine. And it's really not fine. (laughs) Sometimes you find out later on that they were actually doing something really kind. But the ultra-critical person has just already waded in and judged before 
knowing the situation. And the thing is, we all do it. We all do this in, in different ways, don't we? Maybe you judge people over how clean their home is. Maybe you judge people over how promptly they arrive. Maybe it's over the way they look. It could be over their weight or fitness levels. Maybe it's over how intelligent they are or aren't. How they spend their money, how they use their time, how productive you think they are, how their children behave, what clothes they wear, whether they have a quiet time in the right way at the right time of day. The list goes on. And you know, right now, or since the last 18 months, you know, we've got more and more reasons to do it, haven't we? Whether people wear a mask, whether they don't wear a mask, where they go, where they don't go, whether they're online, whether in person. The list goes on and we judge people's motives we're quick to ignore circumstances we're slow to to show understanding and compassion do we listen do we take the time and and see if there's an explanation to find find out why someone has done something I think the simplest way to sum it up, and it's why we had that first reading read for us, is that the ultra-critical spirit is, is kind of the opposite of what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy, isn't boastful, isn't conceited, isn't selfish doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love, this one, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Can you say that of yourself? But rejoices in truth. What's the problem with being ultra-critical? Well, what we're doing is we're, we're setting ourselves up as if we're God, aren't we? As if we were the Lord and judge of mankind. In Romans chapter 14, Paul writes about folks who eat and drink different things or consider one day to be above another day. And Paul says, but you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? And he says of each believer, before his own Lord, he stands or falls. In other words, it's not your place to form these judgments. He goes on, we will all, listen carefully, Paul says this, we will all stand before the tribunal of God. You might think, hold on a minute there, Paul. <laughs> I'm not going to be judged. Jesus has been judged in my place. I, I, I am justified by faith alone, Paul. It doesn't matter how I live. But that's not... Well, it's not entirely right, is it? That's, that's only partly right. That's, that's not what Paul, who is, let's be honest, the champion of justification by faith alone, says. Now, don't worry. <laughs> Some people feeling nervous, I'm sure. We're, you know, we're not denying the gospel here. We're not saying that we are justified by what we do. But nor are we saying that it doesn't matter what we do. Or that we won't stand before the tribunal. Have a look back at what Jesus says in verses 1 and 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We are all going to be judged one day. 
might help us at this point if we just consider the three types of judgment the Bible speaks about. Firstly, there is final and eternal judgment. Hebrews 9 verse 27, man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. And that's where justification by faith alone comes in. You know, we can't face this eternal and final judgment in our own righteousness, but only in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And as we listen to this sermon, me with you, as we're convicted of our sin of being ultra-critical, let's first of all remember Christ. Christ who had the authority to judge, yet came to rescue. Who lived a righteous life, yet died an undeserved death. He did that to serve the sentence of lawbreakers like you and me, who have lived self-righteous lives judging others, putting ourselves in the place of God and rejecting him all the while. Let's thank God that we're justified before him by faith alone in Christ alone. And and if that doesn't describe you, if you're scrambling around trying to prove your own righteousness, if you find yourself constantly needing to declare to others why you are a good person and failing ever to recognise and admit to yourself, let alone to anybody else, that you need Jesus, then please chat to somebody here, to Alistair, to Barclay or me if I'm still around afterwards, but we'd love to talk more with you about how you can face this final and eternal judgment without fear. But that's not the only kind of judgment the Bible speaks of. Secondly, there is the judgment of discipline, the judgment of discipline in the lives of believers. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul calls believers to examine themselves before they take the Lord's Supper. I wonder if you've considered that passage before. And he even says that failure to do so can lead, in verse 30, to Many of you who are sick and ill and many have fallen asleep, by which he means uh, have died. That's a delicate area. And we know from elsewhere in scripture that we need to be very careful not to tie specific particular sins to specific particular suffering or difficulties in life. But scripture also teaches that it matters how we walk. And that God chooses to discipline his children for their good. And in fact, that is a a doctrine to be celebrated. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Lloyd-Jones says, in a sense, we ought to be more frightened if nothing ever goes wrong in this world than if things do. God disciplines his children to bring us into the likeness of our older brother. So that's the second, uh, if you like, category of discipline. And the third is this. The third is the judgment of rewards. And this is what I think Jesus is primarily referring to here. It comes up a number of times in Matthew's gospel. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a doctrine we give a lot of, well, certainly at Christchurch, or in my time as a Christian, I've heard taught many, many times. Maybe different here at Hollywell. But it's a, it is a, a, a teaching that Jesus comes back to again and again in uh, Matthew's Gospel. There is a judgment for God's people after death. Think about that verse from Romans 14 again. Paul says, we will all 
stand before the tribunal of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. Now, again, this is not to determine our eternal destiny. It's not a judgment that decides whether we go to heaven or to hell. No, we've already passed through that in Christ. But it is a judgment that it is at some level going to affect our eternal destiny by, in some degree, determining what happens to us in the realm of glory. We haven't got time to go into that in any more detail, uh, but I'd be happy to sort of uh, chat to anybody about any questions you might have or recommend some reading. But I think it's here, it's this third type and also perhaps slightly the second type of judgment that Jesus has in mind in this passage. If He's saying this, if you are always majoring on the minors, if you're looking to jump down someone's throat when they say something you perceive to be wrong, then you'll be judged by your own yardstick. You'll be judged the way that you judge other people. So he says, don't be ultra-critical. That that we might not be judged ourselves by the Lord with the same measure. If you judge others harshly, you're exposing yourself to judgment and you will have to answer for that harshness in how you have judged others. Well, let's move on to our second uh, point, which is don't be hypocritical uh, in verses 3 to five. Let's read those again now. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, Clearly, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, don't be a hypocrite, isn't he? He used this word earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've got a particularly good memory and you can think back to when I preached last October, you may remember I explained uh, that this word hypocrite in the original, its basic meaning is actor. Okay, The word hypocrite means actor. Don't be an actor, Jesus is saying. Well, don't be a hypocrite. But the word has that underlying idea of acting. Um, back in chapter six, Jesus called out the Pharisees for doing their acts of righteousness as a as a show, as a performance for people to see and sort of applaud. Um, uh, whilst underneath, there's nothing going on. Well, how's that idea connected in this passage? Well, this hypocrisy involves acting again. It's a it's a game of make believe. Why? Well, because the the the, the person with the plank sticking out of their own eye is kidding themselves, pretending that they don't have a sin issue. Jesus is warning us here not to wade into other people's lives to deal with their minor faults while failing to deal with major faults in our own lives. And he uses this ridiculous image to get his point across. Sure, you're familiar with it. It's a very, very famous uh, uh, image from the Bible. But don't let that stop you seeing how funny it is. Imagine you were to go to the optician when you get a splinter in your eye. In fact, 
uh, Johnny uh, from Christchurch was at the walking centre until three o'clock last night with a, uh, a scratch on his eye, conveniently. Uh, but you, you, you get to the opticians and you sit back in the chair and then in comes the optician and he's actually got a whopping great log sticking out of his eye. In fact, so much so that he can't get into the room. He whacks the door frame as he tries to get, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And he comes in, he turns around and boom, crashes and smashes over a a sort of display of glasses. They all fall to the floor. Uh, And he's like, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And eventually he gets himself in a position and he leans over and he goes, right, what seems to be the problem? I mean, you would just be like, get out of my face. You're going to injure me with that great big whopping log sticking out of your face. It... It's a joke. It's laughable. It's what it looks like to God when someone sets out on an anti-sin campaign in other people's lives whilst ignoring their own deep-seated sin. The way that we exaggerate other people's minor faults and failings while ignoring our own issues. Liam Golliger Presbyterian preacher in America says this, he says, very often when you see someone major on the minors, it's a cover to something in their own life that is so way off that they refuse to face up to themselves. Well, Jesus' point is this very simply, isn't it? Deal with yourself first. Examine yourself first. If you don't, you're disqualified, you're incapable of true judgment. If we're really concerned about righteousness, we'll deal with ourselves first. We'll deal with it in ourselves first. We like to think we're really concerned about truth and justice, but we, we, don't, we don't do what Jesus says here. We don't use the same measure to judge ourselves as we do to judge others. We give ourselves a free pass, don't we? We do it all the time. We don't even think about it. It's just ingrained, hardwired into ourselves. We're biased. We're, we're really often very much focused on the person that we're discussing. Not really so much what they do or, or even the principle. And our temptation is to condemn the person rather than help them with the sin that they're struggling with. What does Jesus say? He says, take the log out of your own eye. And then you can see clearly to help your brother. So if you really want to help, first of all, deal with the log in your own eye. Maybe that's the spirit of harsh judging. Maybe that's the log. Maybe it's some other persistent sin. Self-pity, unchecked anger, defensiveness, lust. Whatever it may be, face yourself honestly and squarely to admit the truth about yourself. Well, you see, when we, when we truly see ourselves, when we honestly reflect upon our own failings and shortcomings, we won't judge anyone else harshly, will we? If you want to get rid of the spirit of ultra-criticism from your heart, or just Just look at your heart. That's the road to removing the log from your own eye. One of the reasons we spot specks in other people's eyes is when we've, you know, got the log sticking out over here, is is that condemning others makes us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? 
It's just one of the ways of hiding and covering up that log in our own eyes. But when we remember that our sin has been condemned, that our sin has been paid for in Christ, that we have been clothed with his righteous life, well, we don't need to hide. We don't need to cover. We can face the reality of our sin and tackle it head on. I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the eye here uh, for this analogy. You know, eyes are just one of the most sensitive parts of the body, aren't they? Even just a loud noise can be enough to to bring the eyelids, the fortress of the eyelids kind of crashing down to protect. If you've ever, I don't know, been cycling and then get a mosquito stuck in your eye when you're riding along, you've just got to stop. Like The tiniest of things just totally throws our entire body. You've got to stop and get it out. It's so painful. It's so difficult. It's so sensitive. We'll take all that and apply it to the spiritual realm. Removing a speck from someone else's eye means handling someone's soul. You're going to touch the most sensitive part of that person. How do you get the speck out? Well, with humility, with sympathy, and with a consciousness of our own sin and unworthiness. That way, when we see sin in another, rather than wanting to condemn them, we want to cry with them. We're full of sympathy, compassion. We really want to help. We've so enjoyed the Spirit's power to bring change in our own lives that we we want to see others have the same joy and pleasure. And when we speak to someone in this way, you know what? They're much more likely to thank us for it rather than defend themselves and reject what we say. Well, after all that, perhaps you're reaching the conclusion, do you know what? It's just best if I just stay out of it. I don't judge anyone at all. We don't want to be ultra critical in our, you know, harsh in our criticism. And we need to take a good, hard look at ourselves before we consider helping others. So surely it would be Easiest if we all just step back and avoided forming any kind of judgments at all. Well, Jesus knows us well, so we come to our final section, verse 6. Don't be uncritical. Let's read that verse again. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So rather than avoiding all judgment whatsoever, Jesus ends this section by telling us that we need to be discerning because there are dogs and pigs out there. In the words of Spurgeon, if saints, Christians, if saints aren't to be judges, they're not to be simpletons either. What does Jesus mean by dogs and pigs? Well, both were considered unclean animals in the ancient worlds. Probably not surprising for pigs. Clearly considered unclean, couldn't be eaten by Jews. Who's who's a dog owner in the, in, in the building? Um, I am. A recent, uh, uh, lockdown dog, that's what we've got. <laughs> um, f- for us, perhaps thinking of a dog as unclean may be a bit harder. But when we think of dogs in the Bible, probably don't think of a cute house 
trained pet. Think about a wild dog that scavenges for food, that, a sort of fierce and dangerous animal. Jesus is saying there are people in the world whose spiritual state, listen carefully to this, there are people in the world whose spiritual state is that holy things or pearls, by which he's referring primarily to the truth of his word, the gospel, people for whom holy things are not holy to them. They despise them. And Jesus wants us to recognise us, sorry, let me try that again. Jesus wants us to recognise these people and deal with them appropriately. We see this in the way that Jesus handled different people in his ministry. So before Pilate, he was uh, Pilate, who was a Gentile, uh, he answered questions. Before Herod, from a Jewish background, Jesus doesn't speak. As if to say that, you know, he should have known better. And similarly, he spoke differently to the woman caught in adultery than to the Pharisees, who he called a brood of vipers or whitewashed tombs. We see it also in the way that the apostles dealt differently with different people. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas say, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, you the Jews, but since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Paul's not going to preach to them any longer. We see a similar thing in Acts 18. Here are people who get presented with the truth, but do the very thing that Jesus prophesies here in Matthew 7. They trample over it with their feet. And in some cases, they turn to tear Paul to pieces. So you see it in the way that Jesus speaks. You see it in the way the apostles speak. And you can see the same reaction in the world today. Share the gospel with some people and they snarl at it like a dog. Talk about the love, sorry, talk about the blood of Christ and they laugh and make jokes. Calvin says dogs and pigs aren't just any old sinner, but are those who have demonstrated a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. That's a difficult and delicate matter to discuss and think about. After all, we can all testify that we were enemies of God before he worked the miracle of regeneration in our hearts. And it's fair to say that we need to proceed with caution here as we we reflect on when someone might be in this category. When do we move on? But at the other extreme, Jesus' words aren't to be ignored. If there are those, if there are people that we know who have had plenty of opportunity to hear the truth, not just opportunity, but have heard it many, many times, but not responded, and in fact have stubbornly turned their backs on it, turned their backs on Christ, mocked Christ, rejected him vocally, they cast themselves in this role of dogs and pigs. And Jesus says, Don't take the truths of my sacrifice, of my giving of myself, of my condescension, of my pouring out my blood because of my great love for humanity. Don't take those truths and cheapen them by putting them out again and again 
and again to be trampled underfoot. There is a time for withholding God's truths. It's very sobering. And as we close, there's perhaps one thing that I ought to say. If you aren't a believer, I hope you hear the warning in these words of Jesus. They're not my words. They're the words of Christ. Are you someone who has heard the gospel, the truth about God, many, many, many times, and yet have repeatedly rejected them? Well, if so, don't cast yourself in this role. Don't trample the pearl of the gospel underfoot, because there is a day of judgment to come. The Jesus who went to the cross to face judgment for his enemies will return. But this time it won't be to take judgment. To take judgment, it'll be to deliver judgment. So please, take up the precious pearl of the gospel. Consider the cross. Consider your heart. Turn to Christ now. Acknowledge your sin before him. And put your trust in his death as the judgment that you deserve. And if you do that, you know... In a moment, your sin is paid for. It is judged in him at the cross. The gospel is a precious pearl. Let's praise our gracious God for his glorious gospel and for forgiveness for undeserving sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Dear Lord God, we are conscious of our sin and so we want to come before you now eternally thankful for your love and for sending your son to die in our place. For any amongst us who have not yet accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour, we pray for a miracle By the work of your spirit, please bring new life. Please bring conviction of sin. Please please bring salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.